Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. That's where we will be this evening, Revelation chapter 4, as we continue our journey through the book of Revelation. And I'm going to just share a couple of things before we read just a couple of verses from chapter 4. I want to orient ourselves to where we are right now as we head here into chapter 4. So I'm going to use the timeline again on our back wall because we're making progress, friends. It's been taking us uh, several weeks to get through the letters to the seven churches. And so as we look here on the timeline of events that show everything that is happening in the book of Revelation, we just came through the church age, which is chapters 1, 2, and 3, where uh, Jesus, well, I mean, we're still in the church age, literally, but in terms of the book of Revelation, where Jesus addresses seven letters to seven churches, and each of those seven churches also are not only literal, but they are also spiritual in their application, and they represent an historical aspect of the church on the church timeline of history. And so we're presently in the church age, and we are awaiting the trumpet call of God to take Christians from the earth, known as the rapture. So we're heading here into chapter 4, which is going to give us insight into the rapture of the church. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. This is an important doctrine of the church today that we understand in the events of what is going to transpire, that Jesus is coming again, and that he's coming again first to receive his bride. We as the church are the bride of Christ And he's going to come in the air, come in the clouds to receive his bride, to take her home. And he's going to keep us there in heaven, uh, away from all the tribulation that's going to be happening on earth. I'm, I'm going to make that case tonight, although there are, I will tell you, wonderful brothers and sisters in the Lord who have various opinions about this, but it depends what your view of eschatology is. Eschatology is just a $5 word that means the study of end time events. So you're going to hear how I'm persuaded by Scripture in terms of what is going to be happening in the end times, but we're going to be talking about tonight how Jesus is going to rapture the church. Now, before we even read from chapter 4, I'd like you to turn back in your Bibles to chapter 1, and I'll actually put the verse on the screen for you, Um, but for those of you who like to underline and circle things in your Bibles, you can go back to chapter 1 and verse 19. What we have within chapter 1, verse 19, is a beautiful outline of the whole book of Revelation that Jesus gives us when he is giving instructions to the apostle John. As John is receiving this revelation from Jesus, as he is there uh, banished on the island of Patmos, Jesus says to him here in Revelation 1, 19, write the things which you have seen and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so the different tenses are an outline for us of the book of Revelation. Write the things which you have seen is what we read in chapter 1. When John sees the appearance of Jesus, he has this vision of Jesus. That's the things that he has seen. And then Jesus says to him as part of this verse, write also the things which are, present tense, John is writing in the time period of the church age, which we're still in. You know, after Jesus rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven, and the the church was born, that began, began the church age. 
So John was living at the beginning of the church age, and we are presently still in the church age. And so chapters two and three are the things which are. But then Jesus says here, and then I want you to write the things which will take place after this. In the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, the words after this in Greek is meta tauta, meta tauta, meaning chapter one, the things that you have seen, chapters two and three, the things which are, and chapters four through 22 are the things after this. In other words, future events. So as we head now into chapter four, I want you to notice with me as we read just verses one and two, that meta tauta is exactly the Greek words that are used at the beginning of verse one and the end of verse one, which indicates to us that this is a transition from chapters two and three, which deal with things that presently are the church age, and now we're looking into the future. Now, not everything from chapters four to 22 are necessarily in the future. Some things are looking backwards in time, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. But, but when, when the Lord gives this outline there in Revelation 119, and he says, I want you to write things you've seen, things that are, and things that uh, will come after this, we're heading now into the after this part, okay? So if you look there in your Bibles at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, John writes this, after these things, well, there's the Greek right there, meta tauta. After these things, after this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. And that's meta tauta again. So like bookends there in verse one, he begins with Meta Tata, he ends with Meta Tata. It's letting us know that we're transitioning now into future events. So, what we're about to read here in chapter four is in the future. And in verse two, John says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So, he is in the Spirit, transported. He's physically on the island of Patmos, banished there. Um, by Domitian, the emperor, because he was a Christian. He's the last of the surviving original 12 apostles. He's now in his early 90s, it is believed, and he is transported in the Spirit. So he is taken by the Lord in the Spirit to heaven, where he sees one sitting on the throne. He sees the Lord sitting on the throne. So he is given this invitation. He hears these words, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this, made a tower, and then he is transported into heaven. So it's a picture here of uh, things that are to come, and we're going to talk about these first two verses tonight, but let's first have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you now as we dive into chapter four for your word, and we pray that you would use it to speak to us tonight. And Lord, as always, as we talk about these things that are to come that you have shown us and you are revealing to us through Scripture, we pray that our hearts would not be burdened, that we wouldn't become heavy in our hearts or in our minds and our thoughts, but that we would constantly be turning to you, remembering 
that you are our hope, you are our eternal reward, you are our future. We have nothing to fear, things on earth are gonna get crazy, uh, but Lord, we trust you, and, uh, and we know and believe that our eternal reward as believers in Jesus Christ is with you forever and ever, and we look forward to that day, Lord. And so, as we look here into chapter four, we pray you would give us insight and understanding and that you would just minister to our hearts with your peace. You're going to tell us as we read other verses to comfort one another with these words. And so, Lord, we receive your comfort that you intend us to have as your children, as the bride of Christ, ready for your return, Lord. We're comforted by these promises, and we love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right, now, we have not yet obviously gotten to chapter 6. But between chapters 6 and 18, the Bible describes devastating, cataclysmic events that will take place upon the earth at a future time called the Great Tribulation. Now, some say it's just the tribulation of seven years and the last three and a half are the worst part, and so that's the Great Tribulation. But, you know, any tribulation is great in my mind, right? So the the Bible says that there's a time coming, and chapter 6 through 18 detail it, which we'll get to eventually. Maybe Jesus will return before we get there, and that's fine. Um, You can just live it out. Uh, But but at, at some point in the future, there will be seven years of tribulation upon the earth, devastating cataclysmic events described between chapter 6 and 18. Wars, famine, the scarcity of fresh water, global economic collapse around the world, natural disasters around the world, earthquakes, much more than what we experienced on a regular basis here, meteor showers, hail, fire upon the earth. It's coming. And the Bible tells us between chapter 6 and 18 that when you start to calculate the number of deaths, there will be billions, you heard me right, with a B, billions of people who will die on the earth during the period of the tribulation. Because it talks about whole percentages of populations. Billions of people will die during the great tribulation. Now, why would God allow that kind of thing? Why would he cause that kind of thing? Because he is behind the events of the great tribulation. And all I can tell you is this. I don't know what it took for you to come. How, how many say that you, you have a personal profession of faith in, in Jesus Christ, right? Let me see your hands. Okay. If you didn't raise your hand, I, I pray and trust that at some point you will come to a place where you will make a profession of faith in Jesus. We don't want to coerce you. We don't want to manipulate you. We want the Lord to draw you into relationship with him. But for those who raised their hands, I don't know what it took in your life for you to finally surrender to Jesus, okay? But sometimes the path is not easy to surrender because there's a, there's a stubborn part in all of us that is reluctant to yield to Jesus as Savior. Why? Because we want to be captain of our own ship and, and we want to be in charge of our lives. And to get to the place where you finally surrender the Lordship of Jesus is a humbling thing and sometimes God will use some very serious things to finally get our attention to bend our knee, okay? 
That's what the great tribulation is going to be like, because this is the last call. You, you ever, you know, when, when you fly and, and they're like, okay, and don't you hate when, 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 you, when you fly and they make you feel like, well, I mean, if you're, if you're first class, if you're like the, in the diamond club, or if you're you know, all gold card carrying members, you love it because you're like the first ones. And so they're like, all gold card, you know, diamond people. All right, all you frequent flyer people, all, all you privileged upper class people, you're welcome to go. And then everybody boards first, and then you're just still standing there waiting for, all right, all, all the rest of you, the scum of the earth, you can now go. All right. And so, and then you board, but, but then they always say, final call, final call final boarding call this is kind of what the tribulation is like it's god's final boarding call for people who don't know him so guess what he has to do he resorts to methods to finally get people's attention until they can finally hear the verizon call can you hear me now for for forever people are just like i don't want to listen to jesus i don't want to listen to god i don't believe the bible i don't believe and god's going to be like can you hear me now because now this is the final boarding call. And what does God have to do to finally get our attention? It's the last chance. So as severe as some of this stuff looks like from chapter 6 to 18, it's the last chance. Now, I raise all this because the big question becomes, where are Christians going to be during this great tribulation that comes upon the earth? Where will Christians be? Now, again, it depends what your eschatology is on that. Eschatology just means the study of end-time events. And I will tell you that there are great godly people who differ on this, and there are three basic positions. And you're going to hear my bent, which is fine. I'm going to substantiate it with Scripture, and you know, you're welcome to have a different view if you'd like. But there are three basic views about where Christians will be during the tribulation period. The first view is called post-trib, meaning post-tribulation, that some Christians believe, I don't share this, but some Christians believe that the church will not get taken until after the tribulation is all over, meaning we go through it. We go through all of the chapter 6 through 18. Christians get ready. People who hold a post-trib view are basically saying Christians get ready. And, you know, you can look at verses like Jesus did say in John 16, in this world you will have trouble or tribulation. New King James says tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, I don't personally believe, and many others, that that is tribulation capital T. That's tribulation little t. We all go through tribulation at different times. We all go through troubles. We all go through difficulties. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean your life is sailing clear now. In fact, after you become a Christian, a lot of times your, your life becomes even more challenging in different ways because when you were swimming with everybody else in the same direction, life was a breeze. Once you start surrendering to Jesus and have to swim against the current, it's a lot more difficult at times. And so, you're going to feel challenges in life. So when Jesus says in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. Some say, well, okay, we're going to go through it. I don't think that's what it means. I think it's small T that we all go through, not capital T tribulation. That's one view. They're the post-trib people who say, we're going to go through it. There are others who are, they take a mid position, mid tribulation called the mid-trib people who believe that Christians will go through half of the seven years of tribulation, and then at some point in three and a half years into the seven years of tribulation, then Jesus is going to come and take us out of here. That's the mid-tribulation view. And 
Jesus did say in Matthew 24, verse 22, he did say that except uh, for, that nobody would be able to endure those days, except for the fact that for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Those days will be shortened. And so some look at that and say, okay, he didn't say they will be avoided. He said they'll be shortened. And so maybe we go through half of it. And then before the worst part of it, Jesus comes for his church. So there's post-trib position, there's a mid-trib position, and then there's the right position. (laughs) All right. Okay, it's a joke, but it's what I believe, and and I'm going to substantiate it from Scripture, and that's the pre-trib position. It's the belief that Christians will be taken from the earth before pre-tribulation. Now, in chapter 4 here of Revelation, verses 1 and 2, let me read it again. We have a picture here that is painted and I think substantiates the pre... It's not the only place in the Bible, but I think it's, it's a place in Revelation that substantiates for us the pre-tribulation view, which is wh- how I'm persuaded. It is the view of our church that Christians will be taken before the tribulation period. And here's, here's again, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. For you note takers, you can jot this down. Here in Revelation 4.1, John is a type, he's a figure, he's a picture of the church raptured prior to the tribulation period, which begins in chapter 6. Now, this is an important doctrine of the church, and it is the doctrine of the rapture. This is what we're going to be talking about tonight. Now, before I make the argument from chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, about why I believe it is a proof text for the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, Let me first explain what the rapture is and why we're looking forward to it. Now, if you've been here at Cornerstone for very long, you've heard me on many different occasions talk about the rapture. So this will be not new information for many of you. But for those of you who don't know, and for the sake of those who are watching also online, I want to explain what we mean when we talk about the rapture. It is a word that is not found anywhere in the Bible. And my Seventh-day Adventist friends love to point that out to me, okay? Because Seventh-day Adventists do not believe in what I'm about to tell you. And, and um, I pity them, to be honest with you, because um, knowing that Jesus is going to come and take his bride home is, is the blessed hope of the church. And, and if you don't have that hope, if you're just going to, you know you know, be, be sitting around and going through all this and uh, it never happens. I mean, to be pitied for sure, if you believe that. Well, what I like to say in response to those who say, well, the word rapture itself is nowhere in the Bible, which is true, is that also the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. But yet that's clearly a doctrine that as believers, we believe that God is one God who reveals himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They believe the doctrine of the Trinity, but the word Trinity is not in the Bible. We also believe the doctrine of the rapture, but the word rapture is not in the Bible. So what do we mean by rapture? Just as a synopsis, here's what, what it means. That there will be a sudden return of Christ in the clouds 
to physically snatch only the Christians from the earth who are still alive sometime prior to the start of the Great Tribulation so that they will not experience the devastating things that are coming upon the earth. That's basically what the rapture is. And the doctrine of the pre-trib position is just what I recited to you there on the screens. Jesus is going to come suddenly. And um, he he only comes in the clouds, okay? After the tribulation, he comes down to the earth. That's a different part of our timeline we'll get to eventually. But the first part of his second coming, the first phase, if you will, is Jesus coming in the clouds to receive, to snatch Christians from the earth. And that's what, the, that's what rapture is all about. It's the idea that there's going to be this moment in time at some point. And by the way, there's nothing else in the Bible in terms of prophecy that has to happen before the rapture. In other words, the rapture could occur at any time, at any time. And so that's why we should be ready. Because this part, this first phase of the second coming of Christ, when he comes in the clouds to snatch Christians from the earth, could happen at any point. So what I want to do is I want to first, again, before we talk about chapter 4, verse 1 of Revelation, I first want to just build the understanding of what the rapture is about. I'm going to take you to several verses in the Bible. Again, this might be familiar territory to those of you who are familiar with the rapture. But I first want to take us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 15 through 18. Now, I'm going to put these verses on the screen just because I'm going to comment on it as I teach through it, but I encourage you to turn in your Bibles because you're going to want to underline certain words, and you're going to make little notations in the margin of your Bible. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18, this is what Paul wrote. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. All right, so this is intended to be comforting to us. A reminder of God's grace that is upon us as Christians. I underline the words caught up in verse 17 because that's where we get the word rapture. Now, in English, it says caught up. In the original Greek language of the New Testament, the word is harpazo. Harpazo. Um, It translates seized or snatched. When the Bible is translated in Latin, called the Latin Vulgate, the word that was used in Latin for caught up which is harpazo in the Greek, was raptus. That's where we get our English word rapture. Raptus in Latin means to be seized, caught up, snatched. And so this is what Paul's writing about here. Now, he writes about being caught up together with them. Who's the them? Well, you have to go back earlier and see who's he referring to. He talks about in verse 15 that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, okay, so let's just say, for example, Jesus were to come today, all right, that's we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord. But we will not go before, we will not precede those who are asleep. Now, remember, we've talked about this before. In the New Testament, asleep is a euphemism for death. It doesn't mean, like Jehovah's Witnesses will teach you, when you die, 
your soul goes to sleep in the grave and you don't wake up until the second coming. That's nonsense. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We go immediately to be with the Lord as a believer. When we die, our spirit separates from our body and goes to be with Jesus. But our body, our physical body, will remain in a tomb and and our bodies decompose. So when he says here, we are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those believers who have already died, they're going to go before we go because they're going to get their glorified body. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. So there's going to be the sound of like a trumpet and the dead in Christ, the believers who have already died before us, will rise first. Okay, now, here's the deal. Here's what's happening. When we go to heaven, presently our spirit separates from our body and goes into heaven. But the Bible speaks about how we as believers will also get glorified bodies as Jesus got a glorified body. When Jesus rose from the dead, his physical body had become glorified. In other words, it was imperishable. It couldn't die again. It couldn't get sick. It wouldn't get weak. His physical appearance was still the same, but his body had transformed into something that was glorified. And what the Bible promises is that we will also get a glorified body like he has, but not until this time. Because presently, if you were to die, you don't get a glorified body. Your spirit separates from your physical body, and your spirit goes to be with the Lord. But your spirit doesn't have a glorified body. It's just a spirit in the presence with the Lord. So what Paul is writing here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is this idea. That as believers, we're all going to get a glorified body in two separate ways. First, the first ones are going to get a glorified body are those Christians who have already died. So everybody who's died before us... When that trumpet call sounds, graves are going to be opened. And those dead, physical, now bodies that have decomposed and returned to dust will be miraculously changed and become a glorified body. And those glorified bodies will rise from those graves to be reunited with the spirits that are in heaven so that those who have died before us will get their glorified body before us. Okay? Now, I get all kinds of questions on this. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. My Uncle Charlie was cremated and his ashes were scattered at sea. What's going to happen to Uncle Charlie? Because everybody knows that once his ashes were scattered, probably then some sharks came along and ate all the ashes. And, and now it's gone through many other cycles. Where is Uncle Charlie? Listen to me on this. Listen to me. I'm going to liberate you. Listen to me. The same God who formed the universe and cast all the stars into outer space can bring Uncle Charlie back. Trust me on that, okay? The molecular composition of Uncle Charlie will miraculously be brought back together. It's no problem for God. It's no problem for God. Suddenly, little canisters on people's mantles will be gone Think about it. Cremation's not an issue, by the way, because, I mean, you can decompose either quickly through cremation or uh, over a long period of time through natural decomposition. But whatever, God is a big enough God. He's going to take all the molecular components of every human being who has ever died in Christ and bring it together into a glorified body. I had a pastor friend once who, 
in California who um, was doing a funeral and the wishes for the deceased, the family said, was that he should be cremated and then they wanted to go up in a helicopter and they wanted to then cast the ashes out over the sea in the Pacific. And so he's like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do this. I've never done this before, but we'll do this. And so they get up in the helicopter and, you know, the chopper blades are pretty loud. And so, and they, they pull open the, the side door of the chopper and the pastor's saying a few loud words, you know, in remembrance. And then he opens up the container and scatters it. And when he did, do you know what happened? All the ashes flew back in everybody's face inside the helicopter. <laughs> They're choking. They're choking on their loved one. God can even take care of that. Okay? No problem for God. But the dead in Christ will rise first. So believers who have already gone on before us, they're going to get their glorified bodies before we do. But then look at the rest of the verse. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Dead in Christ, glorified bodies, graves rise, ashes come back together, bodies rise out of the graves rather, and then they get glorified bodies, and then we who are alive at that moment, that just precedes us, but then we're going to get caught up, and guess what? Believers who are alive at the time when Christ sounds the trumpet in the clouds, they get their glorified body on the way up. This is the next verse. Take a look at this. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all experience death. There's going to be a generation that gets raptured. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. What is he saying? He's saying that for the generation that is alive at the time of the return of Christ, we get our glorified bodies on the way up. Now, I have a pastor friend who has a plaque over the nursery in their church that has the first part, uh, the second part of verse 51 over the nursery now, okay? This is funny. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. <laughs> Isn't that cute? Do you get that? All right. Anyway, Paul's talking here about how everybody, so you just now got that, ma'am, I get that. But, but, but Paul's talking here about how in, in Christ, there's a generation that when he comes in the cloud, sounds the trumpet, that will not experience death. We're going to be taken up, and, and we get our glorified bodies on the way up. Now, if you've ever seen any of those, you know, left-behind movies, or, um, or when I was a teenager, there was another series, um, I forget what it was even called, but, um, but there were all these pictures, the portrayal of, of what happens on the day when Christians are just vanish from the planet because that's what's going to happen. And they, they show like, you know, their clothing still left behind and their, and their eyeglasses folded neatly, you know, beside it. And uh, I, I, what does that mean that everybody goes up naked? I don't know that that's what's going to happen. And that's kind of an ugly sight when you think about that. Um, but, you know, all kinds of things might happen. They're, they're, as a result of that, I mean, I mean, think about it. And this is what the movies portray too. There's a, there's a Christian pl- pilot flying an airplane. All right, a lot of it's on autopilot these days, but at some point it's going to have to land. And if a Christian pilot is taken, what happens to everybody on, on that plane? And the chaos that will happen when Christians are suddenly taken, you know, some believers driving their car and all of a sudden they're taken, and now will there be 
all these traffic accidents and, and airplanes crashing and all this kind of stuff. Um, just use your imagination, I guess. It's, it's hard to tell what's going to happen uh, when believers are taken from the earth. But we will be snatched. We'll be taken away. We, we will be raptured uh, from the earth. Take a look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. He said, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So Jesus is referring here to the rapture. There's going to be two men working side by side. One's a believer, one's not. The believer's going to be taken suddenly, and the other guy's going to be left there. Two women are going to be working together. One's a believer, one's not. The believer's going to be taken, and the non-believer's left. And they're going to be wondering, what in the world happened here? And Jesus compares that to the days of Noah. Now, this is also very important as a pre-tribulation position that we hold here at Cornerstone. And by the way, you can compare Matthew 24 to Luke chapter 17. Because in Luke chapter 17, when Jesus tells this story, Luke records, it isn't a contradiction of Matthew, it's a supplement to Matthew. Matthew says that Jesus compares it to the days of Noah. Luke says that too. But Luke also adds that Jesus compared it to the days of Lot. Now, what is the significant comparison, similarity, between the days of Noah and the days of Lot? Here's what it is. You have righteous people, Noah and Lot, living in a very unrighteous world. And what did God do? He took the righteous out before his judgment came. He spared Noah and his family, eight in all, on the ark before judgment came upon the world by way of a flood. What happened with Lot? Lot and his family were spared before God rained down fire and sulfur upon Sodom and Gomorrah. These were righteous people living among unrighteous people. And what did God do? He spared the righteous. This is more evidence for God taking Christians from the earth before the tribulation. It's consistent. Jesus compares his coming and the rescuing of his bride to the days of Noah in Matthew 24 and the days of Noah and Lot in Luke chapter 17. It will be sudden. Jesus says here, people were eating and drinking and they were marrying. They were going to work. It was just like a regular day. It will be unannounced. We should be aware of it in advance because we're studying this. We should know about it. The church should be educated about this stuff. We should be aware that this is going to happen. But otherwise, it's an unannounced event. People are going to be just living life like they normally would. And all of a sudden, Christ is going to return in the clouds. It's going to be this sound like a trumpet, and the church is going to be taken. And Jesus compares it here to Noah and Lot. In other words, again... The righteous were spared before the judgment came. This is, again, the position of a pre-tribulation view that we hold here. Now, here is the evidence from chapter 4. If you go back now and look here at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, um, here, here's why 
I believe that, and, and not just me, many others who look at this text, see John as a type of the church, as a figure, a picture of the church in what happens here. Because everything else that John is about to write is written from the vantage point of being kept safe in heaven. He's taken up by the Spirit, and everything else from chapter 4 to 22, he writes from that safe position in heaven with the Lord. And so here's the evidence. First, number one, it's the absence of the, of the word church. The word church is mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation, but not again until Revelation 22:16, after the tribulation is all over. The church is absent. When you look at all these events that are going to happen between 6 to 18, no mention of the word church whatsoever, okay? So again, it's a picture here. John is taken up to heaven. Here's this voice, come up here. And he's kept safe when all of this tribulation is, is going to be unleashed upon the world. So that's one point, the absence of the word church. It's present in the first three chapters, 19 times, not mentioned again until chapter 22, verse 16. The second piece of evidence we have, number two, is the open door in heaven. It it, it says here, behold, I looked, verse one, and a door standing open in heaven. The door is standing open because the church is going up. The only other time heaven is standing open in the book of Revelation is chapter 19, verse 11, when Jesus is coming down. So it's like, here's a portal, and and it is open for this event. John is a picture of the church. Come up here. There's an open door. Up he goes. The only other time that door is open is when Jesus comes again in chapter 19, verse 11. Point number three. You see the sound of a trumpet here. He says, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. Now, again, it's not, it's not literally a trumpet. He's describing the, the, the voice of God like a trumpet. But again, that is consistent with other passages in the Bible. The voice of God is like a trumpet, a sound associated with the rapture of the church in 1 Corinthians 15. We just read that. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, we just read that. All of these verses speak about the sound of a trumpet, the sound of a trumpet, the trumpet call of God. And so that's consistent with the time of the rapture. Number four, the invitation to come up here. He he says to him, he hears this in verse one. I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here. And I will show you things which, which must take place after this. The only other time in Revelation that God calls from heaven, come up here, concerns the resurrection and ascension of the two witnesses in Revelation eleven twelve. Now, when we get to Revelation chapter 11, there's an interesting thing that God does. It's part of his mercy to send the gospel message so that as many people still can get saved, and they are sent specifically to the Jewish people, you have two witnesses who will identify who we believe those two witnesses probably are, although, again, we can't be dogmatic about it, but they're going to be killed. And yet, they miraculously rise from the dead, and, and then there's a voice from heaven that says, come up here, and those two witnesses go back to heaven from, which, from uh, where they came. 
So the only other time when you compare these, these terms, come up here, John's taken up to heaven. Come up here in Revelation eleven twelve, the two witnesses when they're taken up. Finally, number five, the return of the saints with Christ is more evidence as to why he's a picture of the church being taken before the tribulation that starts in chapter 6. Because we must be in heaven during the tribulation in order to return with Christ after the tribulation. That makes sense, right? The Bible says, I'll give you the verses, Revelation 19, 14. It says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So in Revelation 19, which is the chapter that talks about when Jesus comes back to earth, not just in the clouds to get the church, But when he actually comes back to earth, to Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, in chapter 19, verse 14, it says, accompanying him are armies from heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and they followed him on white horses. Now, some look at that and say, well, that refers to angels. No, it doesn't, because the ones who are specifically clothed in white linen, fine linen, are believers. In Revelation 3, 5, Jesus said, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So it's a reference to saints coming back with Jesus. Well, we have to be in heaven for us to come back with him. And then also Jude, verses 14 and 15. Jude wrote this, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. But listen again, he says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints when the Lord returns. You also have 1 Thessalonians 3. Verses 12 and 13, it says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and do all just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So, It is believed that chapter 4, Revelation, verses 1 and 2, where John is taken up there to heaven in the Spirit, it's a picture, it's a type of the church being taken up to heaven on that day known as the rapture to be kept safe there when the judgment and tribulation is unfolding upon the earth. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when Paul was writing in the context of the second coming of Christ, He said this in the first 11 verses. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. In other words, oh, that was the name of the the series back in the 70s that I was trying to think of, a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Talking about unbelievers. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. This is our instruction. Listen. 
For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For, listen to this, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we awake or asleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, and then again, comfort each other and edify one another just as also you are doing. You know, the problem with my friends who hold to a post-trib view and a mid-trib view that you either go through all of it or part of it, really hard to read what I just read from 1 Thessalonians 5, and Paul said it also in 1 Thessalonians 4, to comfort each other with these words. How comforting is it to think that you have to go through some or all of the tribulation? The only real comfort is in knowing that God did not subject us to wrath, you see, judgment, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul would write his closing words before he was martyred for his faith in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. He says, now, There is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me, and not me only, but all who long for his appearing. Do you long for his appearing, church? Because he's coming again. And when that trumpet call sounds, we're going. I don't care who's the... Nobody will care, post-trip, mid-trip, pre-trip. When the trumpet sounds... I'm out of here, right? I'm out of here, and I hope you are too. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and the reminder that you're coming again to receive your bride in the clouds so that we might be with you forever. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for your word that reminds us of these things. May we be watching and ready. May we be sober and watching, prepared, ready for whenever that day comes that you should sound that trumpet call and we should all go home to be with you. If we are alive at that time, what a glorious day that shall be. If we've already died before that happens, what a glorious day that shall be. Because to be with you forever with a glorified body is the hope of the church. So thank you, Lord, for reminding us of these things. And therefore, we comfort one another with these words. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen.